This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. I used to think that my love affair with brands began when I was in seventh grade, the year I became convinced that if I only had a pair of Levi's jeans and a Lacoste polo shirt, I would go from a geeky, artsy wallflower to a fantastically popular, sought-after trendsetter. But what I now realize, as far back as I can remember, brands were vividly present both in my daily life and in my imagination. Because I grew up with a dad who was a pharmacist and owned a drugstore, by the time I was five, I was as familiar with Robitussin as I was with Mr. Rogers. One of my favorite things to do was visit my father's pharmacy. I was dazzled by all of the branded boxes that neatly lined the mahogany shelves, and I would spend hours oogling the packaging. I would make up stories about the babies on the Gerber products, I'd pretend to apply the CoverGirl makeup, and I'd endlessly analyze the girl on the beach on the stay-free sanitary napkin packaging, the contents of which, at the time, were perplexing. But for me, The crown jewel in my father's store was the barrette display. This was a stand of magical wonder. It was a spinning cascade of glamour and hope and desire. And while I saw lots of other brands of barrettes in lots of other stores, my father had only one brand featured in his display, the Goody brand. The stand held every possible hair accessory, headbands, bobby pins, colorful plastic clips in the shape of butterflies, a myriad of hairbrushes, combs, shower caps, pretty bows in velvet, bows in gingham, and my favorite barrette of all, ponytail holders. They were sold in packages of four or eight or an eye-popping 20. The barrettes were of simple construction, two round baubles held together by an elastic band that was twisted around to hold ponytails in place. Each pack was organized by style. Some were translucent, some were opaque, and they were segmented by color and size, small, medium, and large, balls of primary and secondary colors. I was allowed to pick one package per visit to keep. I would stand in front of the stand for what seemed like an eternity, slowly spinning it round and round, overwhelmed by the magnitude of my choice. What should I take? What was most beautiful? What would make me look prettiest? After I made my decision, I would bring home my coveted treasure, carefully open up the packs, spread out my newly obtained amulets, and then I would... Well, then I would do nothing. I wouldn't do my hair up, and I didn't try them on. I just stared at them in divine bliss. I was simply content to look at them and add them to my lovely expanding trove. I felt rich with accomplishment and dizzy with glee. No one had the collection I had. No one could be as lucky as I was. 
My best friend, a very petite blonde girl named Andrea, lived next door. We did everything together, and we were very much kindred spirits. We shared our deepest secrets, and we would spend hours on end planning our futures and imagining what we would be when we grew up and where we would travel and what we would wear. Andrea, however, did not share my penchant for hair accessories, and while she tolerated my burgeoning collection, she had no desire to join me in my trinket worship. One day, when we were playing at her house, I noticed a small ponytail holder on her bureau, and I was immediately mesmerized and perplexed. I had never seen this particular style. It was a pearly, pale yellow ponytail holder, and I had never seen a barrette of that hue, ever. Of course, it was the Goody brand. For the next few weeks, whenever I went over to Andrea's house, I always looked for the barrette, and it was always there, always in the same place. Every time I went to my dad's drugstore, I looked to see if he had the pale yellow bauble, and he never did. Suddenly, I was angry and jealous. I wanted that barrette, and I didn't know how to get it. For better or worse, this little object, this little brand, transformed me. Brands can do that. They're capable of creating intimate worlds inhabitants can understand, where they can be somebody and feel like they belong. Brands create tribes. I believe that with brands, we assert moods and tastes and whims and choice. Brands can signal our affiliations. They define our beliefs. And in a time when our culture is so diverse and dispersed, brands can allow us to simultaneously stand out and fit in. For whatever sad reason, my childhood barrettes buoyed up an otherwise rather fragile center. They provided me with a social confidence I may not have otherwise had, however illusory its foundation. My fervent obsession with barrettes has a rather tragic ending. I continued to fixate on Andrea's yellow barrette, and in one afternoon, before I could stop myself, when my best friend wasn't looking, I took the barrette off her bureau and put it in my pocket. Yes, I stole Andrea's yellow barrette. For weeks after I completed my crime, I waited for Andrea, or worse yet, her mother, to notice, but she never did. But for me, our friendship was irrevocably changed. Now I had a terrible secret we couldn't share. I couldn't face her anymore, and I couldn't face who I became because of my desire and my greed. Brands can be many things, and the pro-logo contingent and the no-logo advocates all have deeply felt convictions that convincingly support why they feel what they feel. But what I can tell you about brands is this. Maybe they can make you feel more beautiful, or maybe they can make you feel thinner, or sexier, or cooler, or hipper, or more alluring. But what they do not have the power to do is make you a better person. Brands can't do that. There is no sneaker in the world, no burger brand, no cocktail, no barrette that, make you, that can make you a kinder, more interesting, more lovable person. Only we can do that for ourselves. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is the lovely Brian Collins. Before we get started with our interview, please let me tell you a little bit more about him. And there's so much I could tell you. I had to edit this just so that we could actually have an interview. It would probably take me an hour and a half to read his entire uh, bio. And sorry, Alan, if you think I'm fawning right now. I guess I am. 
Uh, Brian is the Executive Creative Director at Ogilvy and May the Worldwide, where he leads the Brand Integration Group, the agency's Brand Experience and Design Division. Brian runs big as a laboratory for imagination and storytelling. His team is a tight mix of designers, strategists, architects, filmmakers, playwrights, and writers. Some of the projects the team has designed include the 15-story Chocolate Factory in Times Square for Hershey's, Kodak's new brand identity program, the design content for the Times Square Alliance, the redesign of Brill's content magazine, and Beyond Compare, a traveling exhibit featuring work of the world's leading women photographers for the Dove brand. Last year, Fast Company magazine named Big as the peak performer in American design, and this year, Brian became the first graphic designer ever invited to participate at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. Welcome, Brian. Welcome, Debbie. It's great to be here. Oh, thank you so much. So, Brian, first question, mostly because it has to be asked, no logo or pro logo? Oh, I'm, I am so pro logo, it's, it's sort of embarrassing, or rather appalling. Yay. <laughs> Finally, I have someone who agrees with me. Um, so, I always like to ask people that work in branding um, what their definition of brand is. So, can you tell me a little bit what yours is? Sure. It's... Um, and uh, I've been using this for a while, but I think a brand is a promise uh, made consistently over time. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, what's interesting is that people get so, or say some people get so bent out of shape when they hear the word brand, it's sort of this sort of dirty word. And at the end of the day, all it really is is about storytelling. And if you replace the word brand with story mm -hmm. almost anywhere, it still works. So I've really, in our group, we've really, even though we're called the Brand Integration Group, over the last year, we've really tried to replace the word brand with story. And I, cause, because I think it's bigger, I think it's, uh, I think it's more interesting, and it's actually more, more true. Now, when you say storytelling, can you elaborate a little bit on what the context of the storytelling sure. is? In any brand, there's always a truth, or there's a core about the, the brand that is... Uh, that sort of informs everything it does. And I guess it depends on how you define, you know, um, what a brand is. Many people think that they, they're only sort of objects uh, or, you know, brands that are owned by corporations. My favorite brand um, is uh, Santa Claus. <laughs> <laughs> Did you see Marion Banshee's article about Santa Claus no. that speak up no, last I didn't. year? Oh, yeah. For all of our listeners that might also uh, find Santa Claus to be among their favorite brands, is an incredible piece that Marion did on Santa trademark. Really? And deconstructed all of Santa's wonderful visual identity. You know, so I, I haven't it's, seen it's that. It's magnificent. But, I, I think, but Santa comes with an amazing brand. It's an amazing brand promise. Um, and is, you know, has been delivered for you know, hundreds of years. And I think um, that story of Santa Claus uh, and the, the, the kinds of stories that you know, brands like that represent um, uh, can be a really powerful way to think about design. And that's, and that's why I've sort of jumped behind as a graphic designer. That's sort of why I jumped behind the, the lines of branding. Now, do you consider yourself to be, like if somebody said, Brian, what are you? Would you say a graphic designer? Because oh, when I was putting your bio together, mm -hmm. I felt that in many ways that really undermined what I feel you do and, and what you contribute to our community. No, I think I have, I, I like being called a graphic designer, um, although I'm, um, there are many more graphic designers, and certainly the people who have worked with me are far better graphic designers than I am. But I like the, I like the, I like the word graphic designer um, a lot. 
um, and I um, and I think it's accurate because what we do is uh, a lot of what we do is visual, um, and so I have no problem with being called the graphic designer, even though I operate as a creative director and sometimes I operate as a strategist. Uh, being well, and you're also a writer. I write, you know, and uh, I've been doing a lot of speaking. So, but to have, I think it's important to have a root system, and my passion and my root system really is in, in graphic design. Well, Brian, we have to take our first break. Um, when we come back, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about why you believe, or uh, why, if you think that brands are important to people and why. Um, I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is creative director, graphic designer, writer, Brian Collins. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. Listen wherever you are. 24-hour business and financial news. Solid, focused, and informed. The leader in business talk. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. And now, Voices of Design, a documentary series brought to you by Adobe Systems. Voices of Design brings together different voices from the design community to share and exchange ideas on various topics. Today's show features a three-part discussion focused on the topic of sustainability. This is part one. Enjoy. What is sustainability, and what does it mean to the design community? Let's listen to what the designers at the Compost Modern 2006 conference have to say on this topic in Adobe's Voices of Design series. Here is Phil Hamlet, Chairman, AIGA Environmental Committee. The definition of sustainability that I like to use is quite simple. It's basically leave the place in better shape than you found it. Scott Summit, Summit ID. Sustainability is particularly elusive, especially in industrial design, and that's one of the main reasons I'm here is to try to get a handle on what it means and just how it applies to what I do every day and what I can impart to my clients. Mark Willard, IDO. The pressure is on, and whoever solves it in a more sustainable and desirable way is ahead of the game and, and is what, whether people sort of consciously or subconsciously know it, it's, it's definitely what we need. You have been listening to the Voices of Design series brought to you by Adobe Systems. Hi, I'm Daryl and Reith of Campbell Soup Company, and I'm excited to invite you to the Fuse Brand Identity and Package Design event this April in New York City. Join me in discussing the power of research and design as they come together in a strategic huddle to drive the Campbell's Chunky brand into the end zone. Plus, hear from design gurus Rem Kulhas and Philip Stark, as well as brand leaders from Method, Nike, and Target who will discuss how synergistic strategy and design drive brand innovation, consumer loyalty, and profitability. For more information, call 888-670-8200, visit www.iirusa.com forward slash BIPD, or email register at iirusa.com. Mention that you heard about the event from Design Matters, and receive a $200 discount off the standard fee. Rise to the challenge. See you in New York City on April 24th through the 26th at the Waldorf Astoria. The bottom line in business talk. Voice America Business. 
We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 3.18 Eastern Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, live from the Empire State Building in New York City. I'm your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is Brian Collins. If you'd like to join our conversation, if you have a question for Brian, our phone lines are now open. You can call 1-866-472-5790. Before the break, we were talking a little bit about brands and their meaning. And during the break, Brian said that he was much more interested in talking about some of um, our childhood memories about brands and how they impacted us. And Brian was telling me an incredible story about the things that... Well, your opening you know, monologue was fantastic. And I, I, that was more interesting to talk about than, God, not any more conversation about brands. <laughs> God, I, mean, I took the red branding. Line this branding that I, I walk into the business aisle. If I see another, you know, this branding book or that branding, a brandtastic. I mean, I, it's, oh, it's yeah. oh please. So yeah, I guess you know we, we have these affinities toward these things that, that and experiences, um, and for lack of a better word, brands that we experienced when we were kids. Um, I remember sitting, you know, in the, the late 60s. I'm sitting in front of the television set. I am watching the banana splits. I have my Hot Wheels spread out in front of me, and I'm eating Captain Crunch until the roof of my mouth is raw. <laughs> and, you know, and, 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 and taking that stuff. Then in the afternoon, what I would do is then I would go out into my backyard, or if it was the... The winter, my dad had finished off our basement, and I would go down there with uh, construction paper and scissors and string and glue and drawing, and I would make all, like all these, build all these f- fantastic things. I think. Design, like what? what would you build? Oh, bi- oh God, I would build like I would build the Sea View from Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, or I'd build like the Jupiter Two from Lost in Space, um, or I'd build a, try to build a robot from Lost in Space out of old cartons, and uh, our next door neighbor owned it for. Uh, uh, on a furniture uh, company, so he'd bring these fantastic boxes back to me. I would turn into all sorts of things. But the television shows were starting points for sort of engaging my imagination. And so, um, you know, I, w- I would uh, and I would design these things, and then I would uh, I'd say, well, if I could design this, what else would I do? And so, you know, I, I, and I was like in the fifth grade, I really hated the clothes that, you know, all the kids in the fifth grade would wear. So I would go out and I would beg my aunts and my mother to take me shopping for fabric and. My aunts were seamstresses, so I'd go and I'd make them buy bolts of fabric. And I would choose the most outrageous fabrics. Like what? Oh, just imagine every possible cliched 70s tiger <laughs> print. You know, it just it looked like someone who exploded melted crayons on these things. It was just, you know, you just, I get retina burn just trying to think about it. Um, so what kind of outfits would you make? Would well, you make them yourself or would you have Oh, no, 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 I would design them, but, but my aunts would make them. Um, and then I, I went through this phase where, when I was 11. I was really fascinated by ascots. That was mad. And my aunts would make, and I would go to the fabric stores and pull out bolts of fabric, and they would make me ascots and, like, neckties. So you were an 11-year-old boy walking around in an ascot? Completely. Fabulous. Sure. I mean, well, well, well you know, because I was... I, they were, Did you get made fun of? Completely. Did well, you I get was, beat up? No, cause, because I was funny, and I could draw. Oh. And when you can draw in elementary school, that's sort of okay. Um, you, you, you know, you could you get words, you know, but I really didn't care, because I really liked wearing what I wanted to wear. Mm-hmm. Um... And, uh, you know, so, so it was from very early on, I was a little sort of twisted in terms of looking at the world and not liking it and then re- wanting to redesign it. Redo it, yes. Yeah, completely. So when did you first know that you wanted to be a designer? What was, what was your first creative memory? Oh, probably re- redrawing the Ritz package box. When really? I was, yeah, very, very young. And then drawing all the images from The Wizard of Oz after it was on 
on CBS when I was a kid. I, the next morning, I just drew all my favorite scenes. My mom still has it. It's crazy. And I like drawing packages. I like drawing boxes. Um, what did you do to the Ritz package to just, redesign it? Just, I don't know. I, think, I, I don't even know if I have it, but, but, but I remember sort of finding those images really powerful. Now, remember, we all, uh, your generation, we, we, a lot of us who grew up on television, we all grew up on television, where the images are really iconic and really bold because they had to come through you know, the scan lines. Right you see on TV. So we're exposed to the kind of limited graphic um, imagery that was presented by like Hanna-Barbera, right? Like the cartoons of Hanna-Barbera are really graphic. And so I was intrigued by that level of sort of visual impact. And so I, I always thought like the bigger, the brassier, um, it was always much more interesting to me. So I would, I, I would draw anything that I was either intrigued with as a story or I was intrigued with sort of graphically. So I, I liked Ritz Crackers, so I would, I would draw the box. I was obsessed with the Fudgetown cookies package, oh, which yeah. I wish to this day oh, I yeah. could find somewhere. I check on eBay all the time. It'll, it'll, it'll turn up. Yeah, Keebler had this incredible package. It was a package of a character. It wasn't an elf, but it was sort of an elfin-like creature. Fudge, I know, yeah, Fudgetown. Fudgetown, and then but he was holding a box of Fudgetown, which sure. meant that he was on the box that holding. he was holding. And then he was on the box. And, and he was on the box. So box. for me, that, you know, that infinite kind of perspective was mind-blowing. It's very funny. Um, Brian, we have a caller. We have Gregory and um, Gregory from New York. Thanks for calling Design Matters. Hi, Debbie. Hi. Hello, Gregory from New York. Oh, I think we lost him. Is he still there? Oh, I'm there. Oh, oh okay. You got yeah. cut off. Hi. Uh, we got cut off. Okay, hi. Hi, you have hi. a question for Brian? Yeah, I do, Brian. I think we were separated at birth, number one. Are you an only child? Uh, no, I'm uh, the oldest of five. Wow, it's amazing. You sound like such an only child. Um, <laughs> I'm, not, um, I'm, I'm not sure how that's going to treat with Jeannie, Mary Ellen, Bobby, and Maureen, my no sisters. Oh, maybe because um, you're the only boy. That's yeah. No, 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 no. Bob is my younger oh, oh, brother. Okay. He's, he's okay. okay. Yeah. You're just playing crazy, that's all, but in a great oh, way. Yeah, completely. Um, I, I, too, came from a family of retailers, Debbie, and um, my father had a men's store, and when I was 10, he, he decided to have a boy's store, and I was told explicitly that that did not mean I could go in and pick what I wanted. So I understood that one barrette um, thing per, per visit. visit. yeah. Uh, I, Brian, I'm, I'm curious to know, you're talking about, um, you know, brands equals stories. Do you sure. think that that equals tradition? Sometimes it, it means tradition. And, and sometimes a brand can completely reinvent itself when it goes back and it discovers its root system and its, and its stories. You know, a brand can be... Um, can be, a brand can be reinvented by going back and finding its story again. Uh, we were lucky to do that with, with Motorola years ago. Uh, I started working with uh, Jeffrey Frost, who was an amazing marketing thinker who passed away. And he was about to hire um, a very famous brand identity firm to, who had convinced him that the Motorola logo had to be thrown out because it, it looked like it was stuck in the 1950s. And what I said to, to Jeffrey and my team said to Jeffrey was, let's keep that logo. It's not the problem with the logo. The problem is how you tell your story around the logo and all the things that inform it. So if you go back to the history of innovation that Motorola represented and the extraordinary breakthroughs that they made, including getting helping get technology that put man on the moon, then use that as an engine for your future. Don't see it as a, as a dusty, heavy weight. Right. It's always where, I guess, brand marketers, um, they, they want to change packaging and they just want to change the look, and you always want to say, well, there's really nothing wrong with it. It's sort of wrong with how you're presenting it. I think sometimes there are times when a brand can be reinvented and by going back to the past and, and, and holding on to exactly what made it famous all through the time. I, I think the IBM identity is a really good example of that. And 
we've been very successful. We've been very fortunate, um, you know, working with uh, um, uh, IBM and, and uh, working with them to re revitalize, um, you know, a lot of that communication. But we've kept Paul Rand's logo. Uh, there was no reason to, to change that, just as we revitalized and, and, can, and really worked with Motorola to bring new and fresh meaning to, 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 to that symbol. But there are some times when the, when the logo is, is too weighted in the past and, and represents the, uh, a backwards-looking view. And I, I, don't really, I don't really suggest that that, uh, that doesn't happen too often, but when it becomes really necessary to change a logo, it's unfortunate, but sometimes it's, it's absolutely necessary. Okay. One last question. Uh, were you a member of the Banana Splits Club? Because I was. Oh, no. Um, I was a, a member of uh, Dick Dastardly's Flying Squadron Club. <laughs> Um, oh, Muttley. Oh, Muttley. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and absolutely. And uh, and and the wacky races. No, I I, I wasn't that intrigued by Flegel, actually. <laughs> <All right. laughs> Thank you, Brian, very much. Thanks, Debbie. Thanks, Gregory. Thanks for calling. Um, I don't. I've never heard of either of those two little organizations. What were those about? I was just, it's, it's, I was mesmerized by Hanna Barbera cartoons when I was a kid. I mean, uh, uh, Dick Dastardly was a hero of a of a, of a series of silly cartoons that they made. And, uh, it was sort of bit based on a, a movie that was done by Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon called The Great Race. Okay. And he, they were sort of, you know, uh, Hanna Barbera was sort of notorious at sort of ripping off, you know, ideas like The Flintstones are completely taken from, from The Honeymooners. Right. And the Wacky Races is completely taken from the Tony Curtis film The Great Race. Now, were you a Boy Scout? Oh, completely. Yeah? Yeah. And what was your favorite activity in Boy Scouting? The uniforms, for sure. <laughs> you know, Brian, exactly. That was the only reason I was a Girl Scout. Not only was I, that was the only reason, but the sash where you could then earn all your, yeah. the emblems, mm -hmm. I was obsessed. Yeah. That's, I was, all I wanted were those emblems. Yeah, dressing up like that was great. But I also did, <laughs> this is embarrassing, I did Irish step dancing for years. Really? Uh, yeah, that was yeah. You know, my parents. That's what you did in Boston. See, now this is what I prefer that we were actually live on television, and I'd ask you to do that. Oh, I know how to do. I could do a jig and a reel. It's <laughs> embarrassing, but I stopped. I didn't want to do it when because when you're a boy, you can wear pants, but then when you sort of graduate into a, an intermediate, you have to start wearing a kilt, and I was not going to get in a dress. Uh. Okay, well, I'm, I'll confess something to you as well. Because I never felt like I really earned enough badges as a Girl Scout. And Girl Scouts mm -hmm. are, their offices are just a few blocks up north here in Manhattan. I went over there one day thinking, well, I'm going to go into, the, they, have a, they have a store there. Let's see if they sell the badges. So I went into the store. <laughs> <laughs> I went to the store and I and right. I see this like little little boxes of all the badges and it, it's like it's like being in heaven. Sure. I see thousands of badges and now conceivably I was thinking at the time, well I might just buy all of them. And so I started looking at them and I, I took one or two out of the boxes and very quickly a you know the head cashier came running over to me and she said, Are, are you a leader of a troop? And I said, No. She said, well, you can't buy these then. And I was just devastated and went home without any. Yeah, you can't. I, I actually, I did get a, a brownie pin that I could have, but that was um, more of um, being an admirer of a brownie, not a participant. Well, your uh, listeners don't know this, but I'm in your office, and over your shoulder, Debbie has a fantastic quote on the wall uh, that says, well-behaved women rarely make history. And I think, um, I, think that the, I like that sentiment. Because I think you know people who just want to behave themselves end up, end up not putting, not doing very much at all. Well, I, yeah, and, 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 and I, I applaud your sort of uh, your, your childhood uh, ambition oh, to make some yeah. to make some noise. You know, I've been behaving badly lately, but I, but you know, th there's always that struggle to 
also want to fit in and not and not have people not like you and not have people sort of criticize what you're doing. And it's very difficult. I think the older I get, it becomes easier to to deal with that. And talk a little bit more about this after the break. I'm see I'm getting cut off by the producers at Voice America who don't want to hear about this. Uh, I'd like to let everybody know they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. My ho- I am your host, and my guest today is Brian Collins. We will be right back with our broadcast after these messages. Fresh, dynamic, and totally prepared for continuing business education. Business Talk Radio. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. And now, Voices of Design, a documentary series brought to you by Adobe Systems. Voices of Design brings together different voices from the design community to share and exchange ideas on various topics. Today's show features a three-part discussion focused on the topic of sustainability. This is part two. Enjoy. The Challenge of Sustainable Design Let's listen to what the designers at the Compost Modern 2006 conference have to say on this topic in Adobe's Voices of Design series. Here is Sonora Bean, Digital Hive Ecological Design. Sustainability isn't just a great idea, but it's a design challenge. And so as designers, how can we use our skills and our thinking and our strategy to promote social change? Ron Radziner, Marmal Radziner Architects. I think that architecture, as a profession, that we've become too removed from the actual act of making, and we've become kind of just aesthetic consultants. And I think that our office is this attempt to bring that all back together, which is really how buildings used to be designed and built, and take responsibility for what we design. You've been listening to the Voices of Design series brought to you by Adobe Systems. Hello, I'm Sharon Ryder Lindbergh from Unilever North America. I'll be speaking at FUSE Brand Identity and Package Design event in April at the Waldorf Astoria in New York City. I'll be discussing the development and the rollout of the new Hellman's Global Brand Identity. FUSE is the destination for brand design leaders. Will you be there? Visit www.iirusa.com backslash BIPD or call 888-670-8200 to find out more about this great event. Consider this an investment in your brand's future. Clear your calendar and prepare to walk away with inspiration, insight, and creative new ideas to implement when you return to the office. Stay at the top of your game. Visit www.iirusa.com backslash BIPD today. Mention design and you'll receive a $200 discount off the standard fee. Look forward to seeing you in New York in April. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business. This is Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Live from the Empire State Building in New York City, you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the only talk radio show on the Internet focusing on issues relating to graphic design, branding, and culture. I am Debbie Millman, your host, and my guest today is creative director, graphic designer, writer, 
humorist Brian Collins. <laughs> if you want to join our conversation, if you have a question for Brian, now's the time to call one eight six six four seven two five seven nine zero. Brian, before the break, we were just talking about some of our childhood experiences with branding, and I, I have done Jen, my researcher, and I have just had so much fun reading about you this week. And um, one of the quotes that we found that I really wanted to ask you about was this: You've said that that as some brands became become pan generational, that's when they take on a religious quality. Right. They become part of rituals. Rituals have evaporated in our culture to the point that r- the rituals we have left are heavily loaded. We like rituals. We need them because they elevate you into a different, somewhat sacred space. I thought it was really beautiful. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, what's really interesting is, is the sort of the rituals that we have um, in, in our life. A lot of them, uh, you know, increasingly kind of regulated by technology, have changed dramatically in the last ten years. Um, we're about to, television is about to be completely unleashed from any ritual at all yes. because we don't need to be at home at 8 o'clock to watch Lost. Um, I don't need to assemble my family around a television set at a certain time on a Sunday night at 7 o'clock when we grew up to watch, to watch the Disney. Of Disney, which um, my parents would not let me watch until I was in my pajamas and then take a bath and assemble with, with my brothers and sisters. And it was ritual. Yeah. Um, and then if I was lucky, I got to watch you know, the Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea right afterwards with my dad. Um, I could tell you the entire Friday night lineup from oh. the 70s when we were oh, kids. Sure, Absolutely. Show, all of those things. And all of those things are great. And we, then on Monday morning, we would talk about it, and Saturday, you, you'd sort of play out those things. Now, I, I, looking backwards, you know, it, it's sort of it's, it's, it's lovely, but what's now starting to happen is television and, and entertainment is becoming completely... Um, unleashed from uh, being grounded, I, I can I can watch, I can download, uh, you know, Lost onto uh, my iPod. I can play, I can watch, um, you know, any movie pretty much that I uh, that I'm interested in on on my PSP on my portable PlayStation. Um, and so the rituals involved um, have become unstuck in time, and they and I can uh, watch it on my uh, at home. I can put it in my pocket. I can watch it in the back of a cab on a subway on a train. I can turn it on and off. So the things that involve, um, that are sort of temporal, in other words, things that like theater, things like concerts, things like weddings, where you have to be there at 2 o'clock, and you have to be there with other people that are profoundly social, um, where the ritual is prescribed and you understand it, those become more emotionally charged, and I think in our culture they're going to, be, they're going to carry a lot more meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, when, the, when these other things that we used to do, we used to share in common, sort of evaporate, the things that are left are going to become more important. So I think in the next few years, you're going to, I hope and I think we're going to see a resurgence in things like theater, um, concerts and events and, thing, and uh, things where people have to show up at a certain time to experience. I think, experience it. I think those things are going to become more important because people are going to be tired of looking at screens. Well, I think unless the television medium essentially reinvents itself in the way that radio has with satellite radio and right. internet radio, mm-hmm. I think that it's sort of going to go by the way of what the old radio was, so to speak. I think these, all, these things all become additive and they're going to evolve. I think television is going to become like magazines, mm-hmm. where uh, if you're fascinated by woodworking, there's going to be woodworking TV shows. If you're fascinated by horror movies, you'll be able to watch Fangoria TV. You know, if you're fascinated by uh, philosophy, you can, you, can, you can watch a television show on philosophy or, or, or mythology or whatever. Yeah, I think it's going to be more like iTunes, where it becomes an archived closet of, of potential entertainment. Right, but the shared storytelling events that we used to share as a culture will become less common. So, and the point that I only made in that quote was that those, those, those elements and stories that we have left that we share in common 
um, I think will become more and more important. How have you brought into your work the idea of ritual, or have you? Oh, uh, I tried to do this. Uh, we tried to do it with all our retail work. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, we, we tried to do it with a little bit with what we tried to do with Hershey's in Times Square, where uh, I designed that uh, with our clients at Hershey in such a way that if you were standing five or six blocks away, you'd see this crazy thing of 50 signs, steam pumping out of cocoa cups, you know, whirling lights. And the sense of ritual is around um, approaching that threshold, having an extraordinary sense of entering you know, a place that's unlike you've ever been, been before, and then creating these series of events for kids um, and for family members so they, can, so they can have a common experience when they go in there. We designed this little device that sits in the corner uh, of, of, of the shop that where you can turn buttons and you press dials and you can get Hershey's kisses, you can get Reese's or you can get Hershey miniatures and they come out of the ceiling. Mm -hmm. They go into a bucket. But I designed it for my nephew who's two, at the time was two and a half years old and who could turn dials. So we designed it in such a way that a family, whether a kid was 12 years old or their kid was two years old, they could participate in this ritual of making candy come out of this machine that came out of the ceiling. Right. Um, and that was a way that we sort of wanted to bring this sort of interesting spontaneous ritual to this retail environment. And I've seen kids go out of minds when they turn this crank and oh, Reese's yeah. come out of the ceiling. You know, and, they, and, and as a result, you know, they, they get two, according to Hershey, they get 2.4 million visitors a year at that store. That's incredible. It's crazy. And this was originally something that was just supposed to be a billboard, right? It's turned it into an environment. Well, we suggested that there's an opportunity to take their, their story um, and really own it. At the time, the if, if you ask people in America to name their favorite chocolate bar, they would say Hershey. Mm -hmm. You ask people to name their favorite uh, chocolate factory, they would say well, welcome. Yep. And so what I said is the mythology and the legacy and the provenance of chocolate making was being owned by Warner Brothers and not by you, when in fact you're the real thing. Well, I think so we suggested to bring that story into, into the, in, physically into a place where people from around the world um, could see it. And it's been terrifically successful. I mean, there, there, there's some, you know, some people like its design. Some people think you know, it was quite controversial. All, all I know is when I bring kids or I bring my, my nieces and nephews there, they go out of their minds. And Why did people feel it was controversial? Well, I think it, it replaced something. That was, it, was, it replaced it, an old Cosmetics Plus store and a really bunch of bad signs. And I, I think you could look at it as the, as the increasing sort of disnification, if you want okay. to, mm -hmm. of, of Times Square. Um, but we, there was nothing there that was, that was worth keeping. Well, I think one of the things that, that young designers can learn so well from you is your interpretive artistry with the creative challenge. I mean, this, from what I understand, initially the creative brief here was to do a billboard on That's Times correct. Square, That's and correct. you've turned this into an, an incredible affirming, life-affirming experience. And I know that you've done the same for work that you did with Dove, um, work that you've done with the Olympics. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Well, I think designers best... I think we should always ask bigger questions of the projects that come across our desk. And we should not take the brief the way it's given to us as the assignment. How do you have the courage to do that? What gives you the confidence to be able to say to the client, um, well, this is what you've given me as your brief, but what about this? What if we considered it this way? Here's why the brand equation is really powerful. Okay. If you go and you understand the history of the brand, and you really go back and you look at their legacy, and you understand what's been true about a brand over time, you can go back and you say, I understand this about your brand. And if you really look at the opportunity, there's a bigger opportunity for you to play up this story in ways that you don't 
that, that, that perhaps we're missing here. I think our, as, our, job, our job as creative people is to answer questions our clients don't even know how to ask. Mm -hmm. Yes. So if you come back to them with something, so if a client throws me a softball, our job is to hit it right back at them three times as fast um, because that's what they're coming to us for. And if we know how to reframe an assignment with responsibility, then our job is to make them think bigger. I think if you understand the brand, like we understood with Hershey, and we've understood with Dove, and we certainly understood working with the Olympics, you can make a bigger story. I mean, ultimately, I think that what you did with Dove from a um, re-looking at beauty right. perspective has completely revolutionized the brand. It's been We've been very fortunate, and uh, we've been working with all the offices around the world in, in looking at how... You know, it was really interesting when you, when you looked out and you look out at all the fashion and cosmetic advertising that's done um, around the world and its perpetuation of the sort of the really damaging stereotypes of, of what women should look like mm -hmm. have created um, an epidemic in many cultures of, uh, of food and eating disorders mm -hmm. and bulimia um, because women are trying to look like some uh, an impossible genetic ideal. I was a creative director on Levi's, and uh, when I was at FCB San Francisco, I was responsible for, for, for the retail um, work in the stores and the posters and all the things that you, that you saw visually when you went into any retail, uh, Levi's retail store. Um, and, and what you end up doing is you end up hiring 17-year-old um, girls um, who are, who are certain, built a certain way, who look beautiful for a certain point in time. They look that way for about three or four years. Mm -hmm. um, what that doesn't take into consideration is people who don't look that way, who are also beautiful. Well, the majority of the, the, rest majority of the world. world. <laughs> right, that would, be, that would be correct. And so I was, and you know, and so in looking at this sort of you know, work, the, the people at Dove who were incredibly visionary and um, sort of were willing to look at the brand as a platform for, for turning the view of uh, feminine beauty into a more democratic and self-defined notion. So it wasn't just about being attractive because you had a lucky throw of the genetic dice. Mm -hmm. That your beauty came from who you were and from your sense of character, not necessarily because you didn't because you looked like a six foot tall uh, seventeen year old model. And how is the brand responding Crazy. to it, amazingly well. Yeah. I mean, there are many good products, can't, you can't even find them on the shelves. What Dove found was the opening up this dialogue um, around showcasing women who look like human beings instead of aliens, um, has uh, energized a big dialogue around the, uh, the, the debate. And some of the women's fashion magazines are really sort of thrown off, off their game because when you have an insert filled with women who are big or in their 90s or who have gray hair or, who, God forbid, have wrinkles, when you put, it, when you put those images beside a, a vacuous you know, model um, who looks you know, uh, stereotypically sort of in that vein of the way models look, they look silly by comparison. Yes, so, so, they, so I think it's 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 thrown a big <clears throat> wrench in the works, and I think I applaud the people at uh, at Dove who've who've, who've worked um, so hard and so smart. Well, I think it started a, a real wonderful avalanche of relooking at beauty, and I mean Nike's doing the same thing now with some of their advertising. Absolutely, I think it shows the power of brands when, when they have courage and uh, vision. Great. Brian, we have a whole series of people here, a whole line of people on the line to talk to you. When we come back from our break, we'll have them uh, join us. I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, on this lovely Friday afternoon in New York City. My guest is Brian Collins, and we'll be right back after these messages. Fresh, dynamic, and totally prepared for continuing business education. 
Business Talk Radio. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. And now, Voices of Design, a documentary series brought to you by Adobe Systems. Voices of Design brings together different voices from the design community to share and exchange ideas on various topics. Today's show features a three-part discussion focused on the topic of sustainability. This is part three. Enjoy. The power of designers and their influence on sustainability. Let's listen to what the designers at the Compost Modern 2006 conference have to say on this topic in Adobe's Voices of Design series. Here's Michael Schwab, Schwab Design. Design does influence people, and whether it's subconsciously or, or obviously, design does mean a lot, and, and, and it leaves a lasting impression. Paul Sappho, Institute for the Future. Designers are thought leaders, and they're action leaders. Designers have got to get this right, and they've got to define it right, because if they get it wrong, all their wrong ideas are going to be embedded in everything everybody else uses. Mark Willard, IDEO. Designers have been shaping culture for as long as there's been design. We have a huge opportunity, and I think before long it's going to be an obligation or a mandate to figure out how to solve these projects, these issues, these desires with sustainably relevant solutions. You have been listening to the Voices of Design series brought to you by Adobe Systems. The bottom line in business talk. Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 3.45 Eastern Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, live from the Empire State Building in New York City. I'm your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is designer, author, wonderful person, Brian Collins. First, we have Harold on the line. Harold, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, thank you very much. Um, very good conversation. wanted to uh, ask you, you did a lot of work on the Olympics. Yes. And I wanted to know, because there was a lot of talk about whether the Olympics would be a good or a bad thing for the city. Right. And I know you've done a lot of work with the city, so I wanted to get your point of view on it and whether you felt some sort of feeling that you were doing some kind of propaganda either one way or another. Well, I think everything we do in some degree when you're working in design is sort of propaganda. You know, the, the, the question is whether or not you believe that that propaganda is being serving a, a, a good cause or, a, or, or, or a, you know, a worthwhile cause or a not worthwhile cause. In the case of the Olympics, I thought it was... Um, you know, the design work and the campaign that we did was for a really worthwhile cause. Um, have you ever been to uh, the Olympic Games? Huh? No. Well, I went. Um, I've been to two of them now, and I've never been as moved in my life. I was at one of the track events in Athens uh, two summers ago, and I saw a like a, a, tr- a woman from like Lithuania. She had she she kept on she kept on trying to win this this a very difficult um, event, and when she finally sort of crossed the bar. Not only did the people from like Lithuania or like, I can't remember the exact country, but whatever, whatever country that was, not only did they wear, wave their flags, but um, China raised their flags, Argentina raised their flags. Everyone was thrilled for this woman. And I've never experienced the kind of collective enthusiasm from um, from uh, from countries from around the world around one person's athletic achievement. So as far as I was concerned, to bring that kind of energy to New York. And to have the, the, the event here in our own backyard was a really worthwhile endeavor. And I was completely committed to the cause. I totally agree. 
I was completely committed to it. And you know, and Dan Doktorov is the real thing. I mean, he was the uh, he ran the NYC 2012, and he captured people's imaginations. And I think he put a really good team together. Ultimately, you know, the the the, the decision to go to London um, was was. Uh, was unfortunate, but I think what we did in the, in, the, in the few years that we put that thing together is I think we showed, um, certainly we showed the International Olympic Committee how powerful and, ha and how um, ready New York was for, for such an extraordinary event. All right, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for calling, Harold. Isabel, are you still on the line with us? Um, hi. Hello. Hi. Well, hi. Thank hi. you for calling Design Matters. Oh, sure. This question is for Brian. Hi, Isabel. Uh, hi. I know that this year you were the first graphic designer ever to participate in the World Economic Forum mm -hmm. in Switzerland. Yes. And I want to know, how does one get invited to this forum? Do you have to be recommended? And the then what type of insight were they particularly interested in from you? Well, um, I was just lucky it, it, to, to have been asked to, uh, to uh, participate. I, I think it's... Um, I'm not sure exactly how they, uh, what the criteria is, but uh, one day I, I got a phone call um, to, uh, to to join them for a conversation, and they asked me if I would like to attend. Um, I think what they were doing, the 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 theme of this year's event was called the Creative Imperative, and they were looking to bring different kinds of people into that dialogue. So um, when I went over there, I went over there with uh, Tim Brown, the CEO of IDEO. I went over there with David Droga, the, the, uh, 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 a very terrific um, advertising creative director who works with uh, Saatchi Worldwide and now has his own firm here in New York called Droga5, and, and sort of a handful of, sort of um, uh, other sort of creative provocateurs, including artists and filmmakers and, um, and, and theater people. And we were invited to, to, to come over to sort of to, to give a different perspective on creativity to the CEOs and uh, world leaders and, and leaders of uh, NGOs. Uh, who are looking for a different kind of perspective. So I think we, we were there, I think, to provide some spice and uh, a different way of looking at the world. Oh, okay, thank you. And just as a side question, sure. Uh, who is the coolest diplomat or world leader that you met who changed your perception of what you thought they were? Jane Goodall. Really? Jane Goodall. Um, I had a dinner with her that opened up the top of my head. She is, it is, it's like being in a room, like, oh my God, that's, I'm having dinner with Jane Goodall. <laughs> um, to hear her talk about the chimpanzees in the bush and talk, um, and talk about how it completely reframed her view of the world. Um, at the end of our conversation, our, I can tell you what, what our, our final agreement was at the end of dinner. We said that the world had been so driven by, I think, therefore I am, that we've become too rational and too left-brained in our thinking, and that we ended up saying that the real definition that we should be going forward with in the 21st century is, I feel, therefore I am. Oh, that's really and that was, profound. And that was a so Jane Goodall. I will remember that conversation and my couple, my few hours with her for the rest of my life. Wow, sounds like it was amazing. Thank you oh, so much, Brian. Thank, thank you, Debbie. Thank you, Isabel. Thank you, Isabel. Um, we have one more caller. I'm going to take one more. We have a bunch more questions that I'd like to still get into this uh, to this segment. Mm -hmm. um, I think we have Renee. Renee on the line. Yes, I am. Hi, Renee. Hi, Brian. I mean, with all due respect, but I I have to suspect that sometimes clients might think you're crazy. Oh, completely. And I'm wondering, rather than asking you like a really obvious story about, you know, trying to convince people about your crazy ideas, who's the sort of craziest or zaniest idea that made you say, well, that's really nuts? Uh, the craziest or zaniest idea. Maybe see. Um, I'm not quite sure what the crazy... I'm, I'm not sure what, what you mean by the crazy idea, because the crazy ideas we propose... Um, 
Yeah, not necessarily. Or, or, or always, or always do, I, I always want crazy ideas that are doable in some way. I mean, to go back and, and, and do a drawing of a 15-story chocolate factory in Times Square, it was sort of crazy. But we presented it in a way that was very logical for the CEO of a very powerful company to make a decision around. So our thinking might be crazy, but our execution is. Yeah, and I think that, that you know, one of, one of the articles that I read about you, um, Linda Tischler referred to you and your creative team as a band of misfits. And I think that's a really, I think that's a, the biggest compliment you could possibly get. Well, I'd rather, I'd rather have um, a group of people who, I think we all sort of fit together at Big because we probably don't fit in together anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like working with gifted misfits. I like working with people who don't fit in anywhere else. I mean, it, it makes it much more interesting. But I'm not sure if I've answered your question. No, I'm just thinking, is there a designer or a campaign or a piece of communication or a product where, you've, where you yourself have said, you know, I'm crazy, but damn, that's, that's pretty wild. That's pretty insane. Um, I think the work, uh, I don't think it's crazy, but I think it's brilliant. I think what Method is doing um, in reinventing the way people ex- yeah, bring cleaning products into their home is remarkable. Mm-hmm. And I think the fact that they came from a planning and a graphic design uh, account planning and a graphic design background speaks to their ability to kind of see uh, opportunities that most uh, packaging firms and most traditional packaged goods companies could not see. And so I'm really inspired when people come from outside a domain and and sort of put a bump in the domain through passion and through sheer imagination. So I think the stuff that method um, is doing. You can check them out. I think it's Method Home. Method Home, method home yeah. Home. Yeah. Ryan is doing a yeah. job I'm, there. Yeah. I'm a target addict, so that's, that's where I was first introduced to that, so I totally agree. So I think that's a good example of people who are willing to, to take a risk and sort of bet the farm, and they've had a tremendous payoff. So I, my hat's off to them. Oh, thank you. Thanks thank you for me. calling, Renee. We are going to close our phone lines. I know that there are a lot of people that are calling to speak with Brian, um, but unfortunately we're very, getting very close to the end of our show, and there are a couple more questions that I really want to ask Brian. Um, one of the things that I think is so remarkable about what you're doing at, with the work at BIG is the group of designers that you've spawned that have gone on and, and are continuing to do truly innovative work in firms of their own or in other companies. They always give you credit for influencing them. Alan Dye, Michael Ian Kay, David Israel, Deborah Adler, your student. Um, how do you go about finding these extraordinary people? The, uh, you know, it's amazing. Um, we've, we've been very, very lucky. Um, and because I'm such, I'm, I'm, I work as a designer, but I'm also a big fan. That um, I somehow we've been very lucky, and amazingly gifted people have navigated their way um, mm-hmm. to us. But also, we're able to recognize it. We're able to recognize them. I mean, I've been um, to, to, to have someone as gifted as Michael K come and work yes. with us, or, Alan or, or Rebecca Mendez. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what happens is they come in and, and you have a conversation with them, and the quality of the dialogue, their, their ability to carry on um, sort of, uh, their, 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 all of these people that um, discuss it intellects, as well as amazing skills. Mm-hmm. So they not only are they able to make extraordinary um, design, not only are they good thinkers, but they can talk about it. And so um, when those kind of people show up in the room, the entire energy, the entire emotional charge of my office shifts, and they, um, you, I, they just jump out. So when I when they see them, and when I see them, all my all my young people in my office recognize they're talented people who are who have showed up with an amazing portfolio. There's a buzz in the office, and I and I try to get them to come and work with us, even if we don't have an opportunity, or even if there might be the revenue stream might not be there. I will try to find a way if. For, for them to come and, uh, and work with us, even if it's for a, a, a few months uh, working on a freelance project. Right, I know. You just had Mark Kingsley working with Marcus, you as well. Mark is great. No, I, and I, I want to work with people. I know, with, with my measures, I hire people who are much better than I am and much more smart. All of the people who I've worked with um, 
whether it was uh, you know David Israel, Alan Dye, Michael, Rebecca, Kay, uh, Rebecca Mendez, all of these uh, Barry Deck, um, they're all gifted people and far better designers um, than I am. Um, but to be able to work with them has been my privilege. You know, I, I've got to stand on their shoulders. Well, that's that's wonderfully generous of you, Brian. Um, last uh, part of our show, the pop culture quiz. I'm yes, just going to be able to ask you a couple of questions before we close. Um, who is your favorite superhero? My favorite superhero is um, Superman. Okay. And what is your favorite curse word? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's good. Well, we've come to the end of our broadcast today. I'd like to thank you, Brian, so much for joining us. I'd also like to give a special thanks to our sponsors, Adobe and Nina Paper. I'd like to thank Brian Travis and Ruth Colomb at Voice America, the staff of my partners at Sterling, especially Lisa Grant and Jen Simon. Joining me next week are the designers and authors, Bill Trentel and Jessica Helfand. Thank you for listening, and remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you next week. Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Melman. Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters, right here on the bottom line in business talk. Voice America Business.